Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. So our guest today is the esteemed Adam Shostak. Adam is one of the biggest threat modeling experts in the world. Is an advisor, a lecturer, a game designer, and the author of multiple books, the last of which threats what every engineer should learn from Star Wars is available for pre-order now. So Adam, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a personal question, if you don't mind. How did you get into cybersecurity and threat modeling specifically? So... I got into cybersecurity because I had a job at a medical research lab where we were doing some very cool stuff in surgical planning, and we were working with real human data, real human beings even, and some of the work we were doing was bringing computers into the operating rooms. And so there was obviously a security component to my life or to my job. And I found it was the thing that really interested me. And so I shifted from being a systems administrator to being a security person, as it were. And then I think there were a couple of key inflection points. One was I was doing work for a very large bank as they were getting on the internet. And I was one of the people who reviewed code for them in 1997. They were way ahead of the game. And so a lot of what I did, although we didn't talk about it as threat modeling at the time, a lot of it was anticipating what could go wrong with this system as a whole and trying to work on that. The next inflection point was at Microsoft, where I joined in 2006, and they said, help everyone here do this. And that was exciting because instead of it being, you know, the wizard does the work and there's magic that happens, you can't scale that. And so we needed to think about how does everyone at an organization do some of this? So that was really transformational to say, you're not enough. You can never do this all by yourself. What do you do? Right. So what do you do? So what you do is you think about what are the really essential parts of what you're doing? Rather than saying everything has to be done to, you know, this level all the time, what's good enough, what's effective, what's, what can we do in a day, an hour, in 15 minutes? That's a very scary concept. Yep. But hey, 
you know, when we work with people who are shipping big, complex things with a tremendous number of literally moving parts and moving parts in the engineering process, we have to think about it in terms of what can we fit in, what can we justify because the work proves its value. Because if you tell people, you know, in order to do this, first, we want you to get a PhD in mathematics, and then you can design the <laughs> screw that's going to hold the two components together. They'll be like, huh, that's a, that's a fascinating opinion, Adam. Thank you for sharing it, and we'll call <laughs> you. Don't call us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I have a question. One of the biggest challenges for product security, product cybersecurity teams of device manufacturers is shifting left and embedding cybersecurity earlier in the development life cycle. So what are your tips and tricks for a product security team that's just starting out with threat modeling? So the first thing I will tell you is it can be easy and should be. You want to give people baby steps and you want to give them the opportunity to think they are being successful, to feel successful, so they keep investing. And so when we threat model, you know, a group of us a few years ago wrote a manifesto, the threat modeling manifesto, and in it we use four questions. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? And did we do a good job? Mm -hmm. And if you simply ask those questions, you're threat modeling. And we can get into a lot of detail about how to do that and what does it look like and what are good answers. But start by asking those questions. I love it. I love it. So much of the cybersecurity work comes down to simplifying things at the end of the day and uh, asking a few very key questions that, that makes everyone's life so easy. So I, I love that framework. So Adam, I'm, I'm curious, since you're an expert in, in threat modeling training specifically, I imagine you have a lot of experience with uh, the do's and don'ts. Um, so I'm curious, what are the most common gaps and mistakes you encounter and how do you tackle them with your uh, training work? So the biggest gap actually is people who don't have some of the basics. They want to threat model. They've been exposed to those questions. They want to increase the skill, the knowledge they bring to it. And they're trying to learn about the concepts behind cybersecurity, at the heart of cybersecurity. And in a lot of ways, this is... This problem is what my new book is designed to solve. I remember a conversation I had with a customer and a gentleman asked me, Adam, where do I go to learn about all of these threats? I said, huh, it's a really good question. <laughs> and so I now have an answer. But one of, the, one of the primary tools that we use when we threat model is a mnemonic called STRIDE. STRIDE stands for spoofing, tampering, repudiation, information disclosure, denial of service, and elevation of privilege. And if you think about how can someone spoof, how can someone tamper, where are the information disclosure problems here, that helps us get 
a structured way of thinking about what can go wrong. The other really big challenge that people have is understanding where boundaries happen. We have this instinctual understanding in the physical world, right? The front door or the gate in my fence is a boundary. And systems have layers of boundaries, right? I've got a gate, I've got a front door, I've got an office filing cabinet that locks. And people have trouble analogizing to that in their technological systems. You know, a lot of tools, like take the CAN bus in the automotive world, it doesn't offer security, it doesn't offer authentication of who sent what messages, so spoofing is easy. Engineering to prevent spoofing is hard work. And so a lot of people are like, well, it's all inside the car, so maybe it's okay. And, and you know, it's we're, we're on audio, so I shouldn't shrug. Um, <laughs> so maybe it's okay, he said, shrugging. And maybe it's not. And the worst situation is where Shlomi says, we have to authenticate all of the components to one another. And David says, no, everything can trust each other. And then Shlomi does all this work that David accidentally undercuts. Again, to your question of where do people run into trouble, getting getting to an understanding of boundaries and then getting to consistency about boundaries is really challenging and tremendously important. Right. Right. I have an interesting analogy, maybe. (laughs) Two nights ago, we had serious wind in our neighborhood. And I have a boundary, and I have a gate gate to a staircase going down to my neighbor, happens to be my cousin's uh, house. And somebody left that gate open. And the next morning, her son brought the, the door of that gate back to me because it had gone back and forth. It blew off. It broke off. It ended up in their yard and they brought it back to me. So we had the boundary, but maybe, you know, we weren't modeling for the wind in this situation where nobody locked the gate. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, it's a great analogy. I love it because we know about wind and we know that it happens and we tend to engineer things like gates to be resistant to, I I have no idea what the actual physical engineering limit is, but it's probably (laughs) like this is designed to be in a gust of up to like 50 miles an hour or something. When it's closed and locked. (laughs) But when we pick up a component, a software component, and we use it, where do we see the spec sheet that says this device is rated to this. And actually a a funny related sort of story about modern spec sheets is I was looking for a replacement little grate to put in my toaster oven. So I went to the manufacturer's website and got what they call the spec sheet, which does not actually list the size of the tray slider that you can put into it. 
So I had to actually like physically go with a tape measure oh, wow. and measure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, how can, how can you call this a spec sheet when it doesn't tell me the specifications of the thing you're manufacturing? But at least it has a spec sheet, unlike every library I get. Right. Interesting. And if you put in the wrong size and you end up hitting one of the electrical sensors in the back and either it doesn't work or it electrocutes someone. Probably, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Or it just doesn't fit or it doesn't, it just falls down and whacks the toaster element underneath it. Who knows what would go wrong? I I don't want to have to think about it. So just think what could happen if the toaster was connected, right? And you had software in it as well. I I don't want to imagine that scenario. (laughs) Yeah, then you have another CVE. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll be a hot one. It would be. (laughs) Very good. Very good, guys. So, you know, uh, while we're on the topic of CVEs, so you're one of the pioneers of the CVE framework. And we find this really fascinating because in the product security world, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the whole standard of uh, S-bombs. Mm-hmm. So we're really curious, you know, what are the main things that you've learned from building the standard and making it such an integral part of modern cybersecurity? That's a great question. I think there are two lessons. And one of these I really learned from Dave Mann, who is really one of the, one of the two key people in the CVE world, along with Steve Christie. The first one is simplicity has a value all on its own. There were a lot of people who wanted CVE to be a database, who wanted CVE to contain a lot more fields than it ended up with. And the simplicity of the standard allowed people to discover uses for it where it was lightweight enough to serve those uses. And I think that's a very important lesson for SBOM as a lot of people are like, well, what about reachability or the code doesn't get called or we want to add information about vulnerabilities. And I'm not close enough to the SBOM world to have a strong opinion about these questions, but my gut instinct is simplicity serves value. The second thing that was crucial to the success of CVE is it enables conversation between two communities. The security people who were aware of vulnerabilities and the operations people who needed to patch things, or who we wanted to patch things even though they didn't feel they needed to, That conversation was the first crucial use of CVE that really drove it to become a standard was it wasn't just useful to us having created vulnerability databases. You know, I met Steve and Dave at the second workshop on vulnerability databases and That was their concept, was CVE would be a way to communicate between the Vuln databases. And it turns out that the communication to a broader community was crucial. And I think SBOM has this, where we can start talking between producers and consumers of software 
and even more about the supply chains that exist. And so I think that SBOM has, has that problem-solving capability, which is one of the key lessons. And I think it remains to be seen if it is simple enough and expressive enough. And that's a really, it's a tough balance for any new standard is to balance simplicity and expressiveness. Right. Fascinating. So um, going back to your book, because uh, we want to talk a little bit about that. So you're just about to publish. Uh, I'm waiting to get a signed copy. Shall yeah, I? that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I was waiting for the end of the conversation to ask for that. But sure, David, you go, go right ahead. Um, so we, we mentioned your book. I mean, your, your previous your previous book about threat modeling has become really fundamental, fund, foundational to, to a lot of people's uh, workflows. And this one, which is called Threats, what, what Every Engineer Should Learn from Star Wars, sounds so fascinating and I think it deserves its own podcast episode. But <laughs> in the meanwhile, can you tell us a little bit about the book? How did it come about and, and, and why Star Wars? So I've been using Star Wars to illustrate security concepts for 15-ish years now. And it started with a joke. It started with a comment that I made that the best way to understand the security principles of Salzer and Schroeder, which is a fundamental paper in cybersecurity, is to use Star Wars. And I rattled off some example. And then somebody said, you should do a whole blog series of that. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And I did it before I actually figured out what I was going to say. It's a lesson learned here. <laughs> Because um, one or two of them was really hard to find Star Wars examples with. But Star Wars gives us a fun and accessible story to tie complex concepts to. And the reason I love using Star Wars is because everyone has seen the core three movies. And that's what the book is primarily uses, right? Maybe some of the audience is enjoying Andor. I'm sure am, or maybe they're enjoying one of the Clone Wars or something else relatively obscure in that universe. But if I want to tell you a story with it, why don't I go to Luke and Han and Leia and Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, who everyone knows? Right. And so the book starts with the question at the very start of the first movie, how does R2-D2 know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is? So that he plays the hologram for Obi-Wan, but not for Luke. Right. And so this question, which, by the way, is not answered in the movie, but is answered in the book, gives us an introduction to the idea of spoofing and authenticity. Mm. And when I mentioned stride, spoofing is the S in stride. And so we can start with that. We can continue to Ben Kenobi tampering with a power converter. And we can look at each of the threats in the context of a familiar accessible story and use that to get into the technical meat in a way that's both fun, accessible, and memorable. So one of the things that, that we did for the book is it has two indexes. It has a normal index and it has a story index. And the story index is if you're thinking about a story in the book, oh yeah, there was a thing about the 
R2-D2 and Ben Kenobi, that was the start of Star Wars. That index is organized in Star Wars time, and you can go to the entry for episode four, look down to where that is, and it will refer you to the chapter that talks about spoofing. Wow, brilliant. That's fun. <laughs> brilliant. <Thank you. laughs> yeah, and Ender is brilliant, I must say, but I completely understand the choice of going to the, to the first three movies, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. By the way, you know what my favorite Star Wars joke is? About to find out. <laughs> well, we were talking about toasters, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how does Darth Vader like his toast? Do tell. On the dark side. Oh. <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, Adam, uh, on top of being a threat modeling expert, uh, you're also a game designer. So we really have to ask, what are the things you learn designing games that you think are applicable to cybersecurity and threat modeling? So... So one of the things that I learned from games, I learned this from the Xbox team before I joined Microsoft. The reason that games have an introduction level where you learn how to walk around and shoot the gun and all of that is it's crucial to have a balance between challenge and ability. And when you have a good balance between challenge and availability, people get between challenge and competence, excuse me, people get into a flow state where they're enjoying what they're doing. And if you have a huge challenge and low ability, then people end up anxious. If you have high ability and low challenge, they end up bored. And so... Games give us a way to think about that relation, or games compel us to think about the relationship between ability and challenge. And if that is not key to everything I do today, I don't know what is. Because when I tell you something like, you just have to ask four questions, I'm getting you started with a low challenge and a presumption of relatively little ability. And then I teach you about stride. So I'm adding a little bit of information, and that allows you to take on bigger challenges. I'm doing the same thing with the Star Wars book, which is I loop you in with R2-D2 and Ben Kenobi, and then we start talking about authenticating humans to computers and computers to humans. And I'm building between your knowledge, your ability, and the level of challenging, the level of challengingness? Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> How challenging the idea is. And this is something that I very explicitly take from game design. And in fact, if, if your re- listeners want to go deeper, there's a psychologist by the name of Six Cent Mahali. Um, and we'll put a note, we'll put something in the show notes, who writes about flow. And that's really what I'm talking about here is a, a grounded psychological concept, which we can use and we can learn from game design. The other thing I want to say about games is people learn as they're playing games. 
right? Do, do, do either or both of you have kids? Yeah, and they use that excuse all the time when I tell them they're on too long. <laughs> <laughs> so one, there's a fantastic book titled something like Leave Me Alone, Mom, I'm Learning, which talks about how video games actually teach learning strategies. But since you have kids, this is a little bit of a cheat, but I'm going to ask our listeners to do this exercise with us. Complete this sentence for me. It was Colonel Mustard. In the living room. With the knife. Yep. So I have not played Clue in probably 40 years, but... It was the candlestick, actually. The candlestick, whatever it was. (laughs) If you asked me to play it, I probably wouldn't remember the rules, but there are facts that are stuck in my head through repetition and through the, the importance of that in the moment. And games give us that. They give us this entry into learning, which repetition counts. We know that. That's why you use flashcards. That's why you have homework exercises that are boring and repetitive. Games make them fun. And so I, I really have come to believe that games and fun can be crucial tools for helping us deliver cybersecurity, which is otherwise a little bit scary and a little bit difficult to engage with, but games can help us overcome that. And, you know, maybe also some of the games, especially if, you you know, the games that go from stage to stage, it makes you think about all the different alternatives. And when you're thinking cybersecurity, you really need to think of all of the different alternatives that a hacker could potentially take and avenues coming in, you know, to to uh, to hack through your systems or your devices or whatever. Yep, it's an exercise in creativity at the end of the day, which which helps, I guess, a lot of uh, disciplines, cybersecurity among them. You know, I think engineering overall is about finding creative and elegant solutions to complex problem spaces, and. You know, there's we talk about workmanlike engineering, we talk about engineering that's a little plodding, and we talk about engineering that's elegant. And we don't need to be creative every time. You know, if we're attaching two pieces of metal together, we should weld them or rivet them. We don't need a new solution for that. But giving people a chance to be creative and explore ideas, as you said, really helps them deliver a more secure system. Right. Absolutely. So, Adam, uh, thank you so much for the time today. You know, I think speaking for Shlomi and myself, we wish you tremendous success with your new book. And uh, you are without a doubt one of the most prolific people in cybersecurity. And uh, it's really been a lot of fun talking with you today. Well, thank you. It was a blast being here. Thank you. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com. Thank you.